Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Thanks, Jeremy. All right, well, I want to, uh, to start things off by uh, welcoming everyone to this month's TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens alike. Uh, greetings, my name is Jason Stevens. I am a visiting assistant professor uh, at Ashland University in History and Political Science. Um, the theme of this year's webinar is landmark Supreme Court cases. And for those just joining us for the first time, the, the point, the point of these webinars is to pull together uh, in one place thoughtful scholars uh, and have a conversation, have a serious conversation about 10 historically important Supreme Court cases. We encourage all of you joining us today to participate in that conversation by submitting questions via the chat box. Uh, and we'll try to get to as many of those as we can throughout the, uh, the next hour and 10 minutes or so. In the next week, you'll receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. And to help us, I guess, begin to think about the topics of this year's webinars, we are drawing speeches, letters, and writings from the Ashbrook Center's extensive document database available at, uh, again, tah.org. And the subject of today's program is the landmark Supreme Court case Gideon v. Wainwright, decided in 1963. And to help us discuss this case, to have a, a conversation about it, uh, we have joining us today John Deenan of Wake Forest University and Eric Sands of Berry College. Uh, I welcome both of you gentlemen to the program this morning. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Good to be here. Yes, thank you. Great. Well, I guess uh, to start things off, let me just um, put out there a, a rather broad question about the uh, the historical circumstances of the uh, of the case at hand, Gideon v. Wainwright. Um, what were the what were the circumstances of the case? What was the background um, that led to uh, to this case um, before the Supreme Court? Sure, I'll, I'm glad to start that off. And let's start with the, the named participants in the case, Gideon v. Wainwright. Gideon refers to Clarence Earl Gideon. He had been convicted in a Florida state court proceeding for breaking and entering a pool hall with intent to burglarize it. He had, at the time of his uh, going before the court, he had requested to have counsel assist him, and he was denied counsel by the Florida court. Uh, he was convicted, and this was a felony offense, and he was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison for that. So that's Clarence Earl Gideon. Uh, 
Louis Wainwright is the other name participant. There was actually an earlier name participant, but he, he his job changed. He's the head of the Florida Prisons Division. So Clarence Earl Gideon is bringing suit against Louis Wainwright. In this case, he's claiming I was denied my right to counsel. And because the court in Florida did not give me counsel, when I asked for one, I said I was indigent, indigent and therefore too poor to afford one. And the court of Florida at that point said, there's no right for you to have a counsel appointed to you as a matter of right. You can retain counsel if you want to pay one, but under current U.S. Supreme Court doctrine, the U.S. Supreme Court has said that states are still free as of this time to decide for themselves the circumstances under which they provide counsel, except they have to provide counsel in capital cases. If someone was up for the death penalty, they would have had to do it. But other than that, it was up to the states. And so the case comes before the U.S. Supreme Court to see whether or not there's a warrant for changing U.S. Supreme Court doctrine and requiring states in all cases, or at least all felony cases, to provide counsel for a defendant. Okay, very good. So an issue, the constitutional issue at stake in the case is um, the right to counsel is laid out in, in the Sixth Amendment. Is that right? That's correct. And just to give a little more background here, the U.S. Supreme Court had said earlier that the Sixth Amendment, which up in, in, in through most of the 19th century and for parts of the 20th century, uh, the Bill of Rights had only been held to apply against the federal government, that is to restrict the federal government. And so the U.S. Supreme Court had decided in a 1938 case, they said, well, the Sixth Amendment right to counsel requires that in federal prosecutions, uh, someone must have the right to counsel, even if they're indigent. But they had not applied that to state proceedings. And that came up explicitly explicitly in the Betts v. Brady case in 1942, where uh, the question there concerned, okay, so there's a federal right in federal proceedings to have a right to counsel in non-capital cases, but does that apply to state courts as well? And the U.S. Supreme Court and Betts v. Brady said that does not apply to state courts as well. State courts, you are still free to determine whether or not to provide counsel for uh, indigent defendants. Some states were doing that. Some states did not do that. Mm. Florida is one of the states not doing that still by the early 1960s. And so Gideon was making the claim this should be a right under the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that should apply not only in federal criminal cases, but in all state criminal cases. I see. I see. Very good. Very good. So um, the uh, the Betts v. Brady case, John, that you referenced from what was 1942? Is That's that correct. Um, so the, the Gideon v. Wainwright case ends up overturning that, that previous decision and applying through the 14th Amendment uh, the Sixth Amendment's right to legal counsel to the states. Is that correct? That's, that, that, that's exactly right. This is okay. one of a series of cases where the U.S. Supreme Court during the course of the 20th century would interpret an amendment to part of the Bill of Rights and say, well, this applies against the federal government. This applies in federal court proceedings. But they had not yet decided whether or not to apply this to state court proceedings. We had a similar case in regard to the Fourth Amendment, the search and seizure provision of the exclusionary rule, where in an earlier case in the 1940s, the Supreme Court said, well, the exclusionary rule must be applied. That is, evidence seized improperly must be excluded 
excluded from federal trials, but they said we're not going to apply this against the states. And then they came back in 1961 in the case of Matt v. Ohio and said, now we're going to apply this. We've already applied this, mm-hmm. interpreted the yeah, Bill of Rights against the federal government. We're now going to apply it and incorporate it through the 14th Amendment against the states. So they would do This is one of a series of decisions of this kind. And that what's significant about this case is this applies the right to counsel in all felony cases, not only against the federal government, but against the state governments. I see. I see. Good, good. Uh, I want to try to bring bring Eric into the uh, into the conversation. Um, Eric, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the uh, the court's decision in uh, in Gideon v. Wainwright. Um, John told us in a, in a summary way what the ruling was, but can you tell us maybe how they how they got there, especially considering that this is a case that uh, overrules overturns previous court precedent as established back in 1942. What were some of the arguments of the court? And I believe this is a, a unanimous decision. Right, announced by Justice Black, so there's there's no dissenting opinions. There's a few concurring opinions, as I understand it, filed uh, as well. So, could you speak, uh, Eric, to uh, the court's uh, decision making in this uh, in this case? Yeah, well, uh, you know, bet, bets had turned out to be an extremely complicated case for the states. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there, it certainly was uh, was the case. Um, you know, John's absolutely correct that they they didn't apply the Sixth Amendment uh, you know, through the Fourteenth Amendment to the states, but they did create something that came to be known as the Special Circumstances Doctrine, um, which said that in the interest of fundamental fairness, certain types of defendants would need to be granted um, automatic right to counsel um, in order to receive a fair trial, and so they had applied that. Uh, to people who, uh, because of ignorance, uh, they said feeble-mindedness, illiteracy, uh, or things of that nature, um, would automatically need to get uh, assistance of counsel in order to receive a fair trial. And this created just an absolute train wreck at the state level, um, Mm -hmm. because none of the state courts knew exactly what the special circumstances were. And so they applied this incredibly haphazardly. Some states like Florida and Pennsylvania um, you know, took a, a very, very strict, uh, you know, sort of construction of it and applied it to very, very few types of defendants. Other states applied it, applied it very broadly uh, and even included indigent uh, defendants uh, in it as well. And when some of these cases uh, made their way up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court oftentimes found uh, that the states had erred in not hmm. giving counsel. Um, to to these these you know d- different types of, of defendants, so you know you can understand this. The states are are kind of vexed because Bet seems to uphold the principle that criminal procedure is largely left in the hands of the states, mm-hmm. and yet every time they seem to exercise that power, the, the courts turning around and telling them, well, no, you can't do that, um, and and no, you've got to grant grant them um, uh, counsel. Uh, so it, it has created this incredibly messy doctrine, and you know, the the court in Betts seems to have been concerned, you know, first and foremost with the principle of federalism, mm-hmm. um, and preserving the idea that the states, you know, have this kind of uh, this power to be able to organize and structure their own criminal proceedings, um, and that the federal government doesn't really have the power to interfere with that. And yet, under bets, that's exactly what the federal government was doing on a fairly regular basis mm-hmm. through these appeals to the federal courts. So there, the, 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 there was a, a, a huge need for clarification 
um, on what exactly bets required and what the states needed to do in the way of providing for counsel uh, for different types of, of defendants. Um, so, you know, Gideon comes along at an opportune time and, you know, Chief Justice Warren, who had been recently appointed to the court, um, he had actually told his clerks to look for a case that would allow them uh, to re-examine bets uh, oh, and, and, and um, perhaps, you know, give, give a new, because you got to remember the court had go undergone a huge overhaul uh, since the bets case had been decided. Um, in fact, I think only two of the justices from the Betts decision were still on the court by the time Gideon v. Wainwright is, is actually heard. So we've got a lot of turnover and, um, you know, Warren does this, you know, this, this kind of uh, uh, favor to Justice Black, who had dissented very vigorously in Betts, um, giving him the majority opinion and allowing um, that, that dissent to become the majority opinion in, in Gideon. But, uh, you know, the court has really undergone a, a transformation in its thinking, uh, transformation in its in its attitude about federalism and about civil rights and liberties. Uh, so it's it's not a huge surprise uh, that the court sort of takes the, the turn that it does. Um, there's almost a certain sense in which, you know, the court was, I, I don't want to say stacking the deck, but, you know, of, of, of all the lawyers that they could have picked to a point, to represent Gideon in the appeal, you know, they go to Abe Fortas, you know, future Supreme mm. Court justice and a guy right. who's already argued several cases before the Supreme Court. So they're really bringing in a big gun here um, to try to argue this case. And he's up against this assistant attorney general from the state of Florida who's been out of law school for about three years. Um, his name is Bruce Jacob, and, and he's in way over his head. He's, he's argued a few cases before the state Supreme Court, but he has no idea what arguing before the Supreme Court of the United States is like. Um, you know, he's so new at the practice of law that when he gets to Washington, he hasn't served long enough to get automatic granting to the Supreme Court bar. So he actually has to get a special accommodation to for a one-time pass to basically argue a case before the court and the experience was was absolutely miserable um he he said afterwards you know we've lost the case uh he he, he knew it didn't go it, he knew it didn't go well mm. um but um you know black uh, black had tended to stay away from in the opinion from the uh, incorporation arguments uh, that had been made by a number of members of the court to the idea that all of the Bill of Rights had been incorporated by the 14th Amendment um, as to apply to the states. He tended to stay away from this and instead took this sort of narrower view that uh, the guarantees of the Bill of Rights are implicit in the concept of ordered liberty uh, and had therefore been brought within the 14th Amendment by a process of absorption and had thus been made applicable to the state proceedings. Uh, so this idea of, you know, very selective kind of uh, incorporation of, of a particular amendment um, that's absolutely essential to our understanding of fundamental fairness um, in, in criminal proceedings. Yeah, and uh, Eric, I'm glad you bring that last point up about incorporation, because I, I notice here that we have a question um, uh, from one of our uh, participants who asked uh, if you could comment on the legal reasoning as to why parts of the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states in light of the 14th Amendment, right? So why 
uh, is the court sort of picking and choosing um, what parts of the, the Bill of Rights uh, apply to the states through the 14th Amendment and why some are favored and, and others not. Um, yeah, please. Yeah, sure. This, this is a this is a long running debate on the court for for much of the time for the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. And the classic kind of uh, positions on this were one was of total incorporation of the Bill of Rights of the first eight amendments to the states. And that was a, a, a position held by some. Then there was another position, and that was Justice Frankfurter, who had just left the bench by the time that Gideon is decided. And uh, Frankfurter is more associated with the idea that, well, not every single one of the first eight amendments of the Bill of Rights was incorporated and therefore, let's say, applied to the states. That the, the ones that really were fundamental to due process or fundamental to liberty, where a violation of one of these would shock one's conscience, one might say. Mm -hmm. It's only those are the ones that were applied to the states through the 14th Amendment. Uh, yeah, that's that's the argument that you get from the Supreme Court in the Gideon case, is it not that uh, legal counsel is now a fundamental constitutional yeah, right yeah, in yeah, order to ensure yeah. a fair trial? Is that accurate? And that, that that is accurate, and that's why that language about fundamental does appear. I think it's helpful to kind of call attention to that because, in that sense, once it's been determined that a right is so fundamental to the concept of ordered liberty, to the idea of constitutional government, once that's been decided then one would have to apply that against the states uh, by the 14th mm -hmm. Amendment. And that's what you see happen in, in, in this case. It's really, as Eric mentioned earlier, it's really a debate about federalism to a great degree. Mm -hmm. That is, if it, it, once something becomes applied to the states, that means federal government, federal officials, in this case, federal judges, are determining that something's no longer in the state determination. And so the more that you have a total incorporation doctrine, the more that you are, in some ways, overriding the states and their determinations. That's a hard debate. Just one final thing, I'll just uh, uh, close off on this for now. We are not at a case now where every single one of the Bill of Rights has been held to apply to state governments. The mm -hmm. most recent one to do so was the Second Amendment, which was held just six years ago to also apply to the states and therefore be, be incorporated. But the Third Amendment guarantee against quartering of soldiers, the uh, right to a trial in, in civil cases. There are still some remaining aspects of the Bill of Rights that have not been formally incorporated and therefore not have been formally applied to the states. That's where we stand today in 2016. Oh, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, Eric, did you want to add anything to that? Well, yeah, I, I, just that, um, you know, Abe Fortas, you know, knew the court quite well uh, and knew the personalities of the justices and their judicial philosophies. And he knew that that incorporation argument was not a popular one on the court. Um, you know, there was there was a couple of justices that were sympathetic to it. Justice Douglas, for one, um, and and in his concurrence, he he wants to leave open the door to you know full incorporation um, of the Bill of Rights. But um, he very self consciously stayed away uh, from trying to make these incorporation arguments. Um, because he thought that would that would really turn the court against uh, the overall thrust of what he was trying to argue. And so he limited this to saying there was something very specific about the Sixth Amendment that applied through the 14th that had become fundamental 
you know, that it would be unconscionable to, to, to not offer counsel to indigent defendants or to anybody who mm -hmm. needed one. Um, and that that seemed to have been the strategy that, that paid off in, in oral arguments and, and through his brief uh, is, is that uh, he, he found the court more comfortable to, to rest itself on those grounds than, than one of, of sort of a, a total incorporation. Very good um, and very interesting, by the way, very interesting. Um, I wonder if we could <clears throat> maybe uh, shift gears here just a bit. Um, I'm interested uh, in the uh, the original meaning of the, the Sixth Amendment as far as the, the substance or the content of American civil liberties go. Um, right, we knew that before the, the Gideon case that a, the right to legal counsel had been uh, ensured in all capital cases, but now here in, in Gideon, by 1963, the question is raised regarding uh, criminal procedure as well, criminal uh, cases as well. And since the court ends up ruling uh, unanimously that uh, the right to legal counsel is now a, a fundamental constitutional right in order to guarantee a, uh, a fair trial, uh, is it accurate to say that um, the court um, uh, that, that the court's ruling here represents the uh, the framers' opinion on the substance of civil liberties. Um, does the does the court go back to uh, to the founding? Does it go back to um, any of the uh, the debates uh, in the founding on this this question as to the meaning and the substance of the the Sixth Amendment? Is that a, a recourse that the court avails itself of, and does it does it get the the founders right on this question, or does it in any way extend or go beyond? perhaps what the founders had in mind as, as to the, the content of, of civil liberties. I'll, I'll take a first stab at that. I, I suppose there's two ways that we would ask about how this compares with the views of the founders. One would be on the understanding of what's meant by the Sixth Amendment and the right to counsel. And here it's pretty clear that we've seen a significant evolution in from the founding period to the 1960s in what the particular question is. At the time of the founding, the question is when the right to counsel was it was inserted in the Sixth Amendment. That was because under previous common law, the defendant was not allowed to, in some cases, or was prevented from obtaining counsel in his mm -hmm. own defense in these cases. And so there the idea was, let's ensure that if someone wants to obtain counsel and be defended by counsel, that they would have the ability to do so. So that that was the fundamental concern of the founders. So the best way we could talk about that, the relationship between that question in 1787 and 1789 and the question at stake in 1963 is fundamentally different questions. That is, there's no disagreement by 1963 that certainly if you want to obtain counsel and have somebody represent you, that won't be denied to you. But now an entirely different question, one might say, as Manasseh says, suppose you're too poor to obtain counsel, must that be, must counsel be afforded for you? And so really just just a different question that's come up here. The one other way this could be raised, though, is in what is the re relationship between the U.S. Supreme Court and the federal officials and the decision about whether state courts or state governments should be able to make decisions about counsel. And there, we'd have to look at the 14th Amendment as a fundamental break between the time of the founding period in the 1780s and the, and the 1963, because there the 14th Amendment has said this relationship between the federal government and state governments has at least changed in certain respects. How, how dramatically it's changed, that's up for debate, but at least it's changed in certain respects so that matters that were previously understood to be entirely under the control of states are now under the supervision of the federal government. 
that one could could have a discussion about whether or not the mm -hmm. founders in the 1780s could have for, uh, entirely foreseen how many decisions that were in state hands at that point would now be under federal supervision by mm -hmm. the 14th Amendment <clears throat> and then by the 1960s. Yeah, part of what you just said there uh, is very striking. Um, right, we're talking about legal counsel here that is going to be provided, not right in cases that had been established earlier than than uh, than Gideon, for example. Uh, right, if if um, the 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 person at suit was uh, too ignorant in order to to defend himself, but now we're talking about uh, right, if the person uh, involved is is too poor to afford uh, legal counsel on his own, and since the court rules that. Um, legal counsel in criminal cases here are is a fundamental right does that mean that this is a a fundam that the right to counsel is a fundamental right that can only be enjoyed if government is willing to pay for it does this mean that in order to enjoy this fundamental right um government's going to have to pay for it is that right is that an accurate way of looking at this or well or, the court uh, or not I mean, the court in Gideon that left a lot of questions unanswered, um, and and mm -hmm. one of them was certainly how we're going to pay for this apparatus of guaranteeing everyone um, right to counsel, and you know the lead on this is really taken by the states. Uh, some of the states uh, start legal aid societies. Uh, some of them, you know, initially start trying to provide by simply you know appointing uh, attorneys from the community. Uh, to represent indigent defendants. And then uh, some states really started pushing in the direction of creating public defenders offices, um, where you're talking about, you know, the, the public essentially funding, uh, you know, attorneys for those that, that can't afford them. Um, but but the court the court didn't give any direction on, you know, the, the practical question of how we're mm. going to, to pay for all of this, how, you know, we're, we're, the, the institutional form that this was going to take they seem to take it for granted that the states could figure it out. <laughs> and and in fairness, and I, I you know, I, I want to say, you know, more than 30 states had already passed laws requiring indigent defendants to have a right to counsel. So the court was on somewhat strong ground in, in sort of looking at the condition of things and saying, oh, you know, the overwhelming majority of states have figured out how to do this successfully. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's, it doesn't appear to be breaking the bank. It doesn't appear to be taxing the legal system. In fact, if anything, the argument that, that Abe Fortas made in the oral arguments is this would probably cut down on the number of appeals uh, that, that we would end up mm -hmm. having because defendants would end up getting fairer trials, you know, uh, more just outcomes at the trial court level. And we wouldn't be dealing as much in the murk of appeals courts and, mm -hmm. you know, having to appeal, you know, all of these issues raised from not being put, able to put up an adequate defense. Could, could I jump in and just pick up from that, that, that point as well? We've been talking and fo focusing right, I think, on federalism as one of the chief issues that's at stake here. What's left to states to decide and what's left to the federal government to decide in terms of requiring uniformity. As Eric pointed out, the vast majority of states had already decided prior to Gideon that uh, 
defense uh, that indigent defendants must be provided with counsel in non-capital cases as well. So we just had a few outliers here. But the interesting question that came up here on the court was, what is more respectful to federalism and to states? Is it to have the special circumstances doctrine that Eric wrote, where, well, you have to provide counsel for indigent and for, for people in certain special circumstances, but others not. Some people said actually to have that Betts v. Brady doctrine of special circumstances in place was actually not respectful to the states and not respectful to federalism because it always required, as Eric was just getting into, this second guessing of what states had done. And so states could never, and state courts could never quite be sure, is this a special circumstance in the eye of the Supreme Court or is it not? And so some of the justices who supported the decision in Gideon v. Wainwright did so in part because they said, this is actually, we're respecting the states. We're not going to put in this bind anymore having to guess what will happen once a case comes up to us and whether we'll agree with the special circumstances. Other kind of judges, though, took a little bit different position in some litigants and they say, well, in the end, though, that is not respectful to federalism to have this blanket rule that you're going to impose us on Gideon because now you're telling us once and for all, we must do this and we must pay for it. So fascinating discussion here about what's more respectful to federalism and what's less respectful to federalism. Hmm. Yeah, I yeah. Just, yeah, please, Eric, jump in here. Well, I was just going to pick up because I saw I saw one of the questions and and the queue there was asking us about how to relate this to judicial activism on the Warren Court. I believe that was the phrasing of of, of one of the questions that's been mm -hmm. posed to us. And and this is that's um, th this would fit in here as Eric was was getting into one most of these decisions that come up in the Warren Court, particularly in the 1960s, Matt v. Ohio that applies the exclusionary rule and the search and seizure to all uh, to, to to against the states, uh, Gideon. V. Wainwright, as we're discussing here, still other cases as 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 well. The Miranda v. Arizona in 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 regard to self-incrimination rights. In each of these cases, that what you had going on is you had states differing among themselves about what should be the proper interpretation of this. But most states by this point had already decided, okay. Council must be provided for indigent defendants in capital cases. Um, most, a lot of states had already decided to apply this exclusionary rule in interpretation of the search and seizure clause. The main effect of the Warren Court's decisions was to bring some outliers into line with the rest of the country. That is, you'd already had states that were already doing what the U.S. Supreme Court was telling them they must do in their opinion. But in this case, you basically, my understanding is that there are only five uh, state courts that had not already done what the, that the court was required to do in Gideon. And so when we talk about it that way, the court was essentially, let's bring some uniformity in line. There are some people who disagree with this, but the vast majority of states are already on board. It's telling when you look at the Gideon v. Wainwright, you have two sets of amicus briefs. There's others as well. One is from a set of states that say, please allow us to continue to have discretion. They're siding with Florida. But there's only two other states that are agreeing with Florida on this. And then there's another amicus brief that's saying, uh, actually telling the Supreme Court, we actually disagree with what Florida is doing here. We want you to order that the states should have to provide this uh, to, to uh, counsel and, and to indigent defendants. That brief had 23 states joined on it. So in that case, that is, you had nearly half of the states asking the U.S. Supreme Court to hand down a decision requiring that the states do this. And you had a very small number of states siding with Florida saying, allow us to keep having discretion. That's fascinating to tell, take note of where we already were by 1963. Hmm. Yeah, and, and you can kind of imagine, I mean, 
Bruce Jacob, the uh, you know the attorney for for Florida in this case, was was devastated by that. <laughs> I mean, he he thought he had hit on a great strategy for the case by sending a letter to all fifty state attorney generals, and he had asked them to sign on to to Florida's brief in the case. And he was thinking, yeah, the states are going to support Florida on this. They don't want the federal government intervening. Uh, you know, they want to keep uh, control over their state criminal procedures and stuff. And he was absolutely dumbfounded when 22 of the states turned around and filed their own amicus brief saying, <laughs> yeah, overturn bets. Um, let's let let's get the right to counsel recognized at the state level. And he, and as, as you said, he could only get, uh, you know, three states on on board with uh, with with his brief. And um, he 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 was he was just dumbstruck by this um, and really, really showed you that. You know, the, the states, the states in many respects really didn't know what other states were doing and what other states opinions were um, on this issue, uh, because he had no clue that that brief was coming and, and it shocked him. And clearly that brief made a big impression on the court because Black concludes his opinion by saying 22 states think this is a bad idea. We agree with them. <laughs> you know, that's that that's I mean, that, that that's that's uh, clearly leaving a mark on on, you know, how the court is thinking about this. And um, what happened just for, for clarification's sake here, what happened to uh, to Gideon following the Supreme Court's ruling? Because I believe um, it's fairly well known that uh, he ends up getting the case uh, before the Supreme Court, right, by sort of from his prison cell writing out, right, hand and paper, writing out um, uh, his claim to the Supreme Court. Um, but what happens afterwards, once the court rules unanimously in his favor, he's not immediately freed, correct? All that happens to Gideon is, is that he gets a new trial. Is that right? Yeah, he, he gets a new trial. And what, this was one of the questions the court had left unanswered. So when, when Bruce Jacob had filed his brief before the court and during oral arguments, he said, look, if you guys are willing to overturn bets, I, if, if that's what you're going to do, so be it. But please, please, he says, apply the decision prospectively, not retroactively. Because if you apply it retroactively, we're looking at hundreds, if not thousands of inmates that we're going to have to set free and, and grant new trials. And that's going to create a huge headache for us. You know, th th this is this is going to be a disaster. So uh, please apply it prospectively. Well, the court declined to apply it prospectively, but they also didn't entirely come right out and say it was being played, applied retroactively either. They, they kind of okay. left that open. Um, so it was back to the states again to kind of decide how the decision ought to be applied. And the state of Florida decided that the decision needed to be applied retroactively. Uh, so Gideon was actually released and was granted a new trial. And because it was him, um, you know, the district attorney himself was prosecuting the case against him. <laughs> they really, really wanted to convict him and put him back into prison. Um, Gideon was uh, was actually granted uh, legal counsel, uh, the, the volunteer from the ACLU. Uh, the two attorneys traveled all the way uh, to, to where Gideon uh, lived and offered to represent him. And Gideon said, no, I want a local attorney. I, I don't want you guys representing me. And these were, these were two like highly qualified, really high powered attorneys. And Gideon was like, no, I don't want you. Um, and I don't want you interfering with my ability to plead because um, I want to plead myself in, in, in the case. So it was kind of fascinating. You know, here's the guy who 
has fought like hell um, to, to get the right to counsel. But now he's fighting to be able to stay, you know, maintain control over his own defense um, and make decisions about how his defense is going to be applied and, and what strategies they're going to follow. So he, he ends up, uh, the judge says, okay, if these guys aren't, you know, amenable to you, you know, what, what, who do you want? And so he names somebody, the guy gets appointed to the case, um, and they retry everything, and uh, he ends up getting acquitted, um, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, in a way, the, the trial sort of demonstrated the wisdom of what the Supreme Court was talking about, uh, is that Gideon, of course, had tried to try the case himself, you know, having no legal knowledge, no legal experience, and he got himself convicted. He gets a lawyer and the lawyer is able to argue things that Gideon never thought about, hmm. uh, had never really you know, imagined. Uh, and the lawyer ends up pointing all of the fingers at another potential suspect uh, and the jury ends up acquitting him. One other thing to just to pick up from there is what so this decision applied to all it was understood as applying really to felony cases or, or, or cases involving a serious prison term would be the idea but left unclear left for later determination is what would happen with situations of misdemeanor crimes or others and so it's only later through later term uh, cases that would come up for the u.s supreme court the u.s supreme court would have a decision to offer other decisions and applying this decision and that is the right to counsel for indigent defendants even farther and more expansively in terms of the cases that would be covered so it really is this is a uh, this is a crucial case but it's 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 a case that comes um with with even more determinations afterwards and in, 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 in that process not only do they have to decide uh, well that that, that was the one of one of a number of cases that would have to be decided later, even following from this case. And uh, and John, isn't one of those cases that you point to um, what early 2000s, 2002, I think Alabama v. Shelton. Is that right? Where the the court rules that um, the uh, the decision in <clears throat> in Gideon doesn't apply to all criminal cases, but only to those that's where imprisonment is a possible punishment, right? So if, have, it's a, if it's a criminal case where prison is off the table, legal counsel does not apply the Supreme Court rules later on in the early 21st century. Am I getting that right? Eric may be more up on, on, on that particular case. I, 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 I would want to steer clear. I just haven't, haven't, I'm not familiar with that particular case in that sense. But the, mm -hmm. but the general principle is, 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 is the key one there is that just as, mm -hmm. as in Gideon, they're just determining, they'd already determined in Powell v. Alabama back in the 1930s that the right to counsel has to apply in state proceedings in capital cases. And then in Betts, they said, well, right to counsel should apply in felony cases where there's special circumstances, but not more broadly than that. Then the next progression mm -hmm. is Gideon, as we're talking about today. Well, it applies not only in all capital cases, not only in felony cases where special circumstances apply, but in all felony cases, it's generally the understanding in that sense. And later determinations would expand that even further, but not, not, not to every single case you're suggesting. Mm -hmm. Um, is another case um, that might come onto the the court's radar in later years because of uh, because of Gideon, um, the Miranda v. Arizona case uh, from what 1966. Yeah. Is that uh, is that the the legal result or where the court is is heading from from Gideon? 
Well, at least in, in, in one way, and that is the 1960s, if we think of cases in which the U.S. Supreme Court has faced, do these various provisions, particular provisions of the Bill of Rights, do they apply to states? And we, 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 we have a certain understanding of what they say in regard to how federal prosecutions must run, but what is, what, what is the requirement for states? And one of the key trilogy there is not the only ones, but Matt v. Ohio saying the search and seizure clause and seizure must clause. apply. Then we get to Gideon v. Wainwright, and they say not only not, search and seizure has already been held to apply against the states, now right to counsel for felony cases now applies to the states. And then we get to Miranda v. Arizona and say the right to self-incrimination and certain requirements of how you must treat people in regards to questioning. That uh, understanding of the Bill of Rights also applies against the states. So I, I think it's very helpful in some ways in teaching purposes or so to kind of almost group these cases as illustrative of a type of question that was just coming before the court in the 1960s on a regular basis. How about this provision of the Bill of Rights? Should this be applying to the states in a uniform fashion? Yes, the court kept mm. checking off in a number of cases. Miranda, Gideon, Map is some of the leading ones. So, so the the historical impact then of of Gideon is mostly in regards to to the question that we've been debating all along: is this federalism? Is that right? I think so. I I I, I let Eric uh, take a crack at this too, but. But really at heart, and, and I see some of the questions that are coming in from some of the participants, and I go back to one of the questions about what, what, what freedom was left to states in this regard. One of the questions asked about that, what kind of, uh, that, that has federalism components. Another questioner referred to kind of activism of the war in court was the phrasing that was used there in the question. Really the key question here in a lot of these cases that come before the U.S. Supreme Court is the question of federalism. In what areas must state courts be brought under supervision of the U.S. Supreme Court and U.S. Supreme Court interpretation of the U.S. Constitution? And in what areas do state governments and state courts and state officials still have wide discretion to make their own determinations? Insofar as these, uh, it, as provision of the Bill of Rights are not incorporated by the 14th Amendment against the states, that allows state governments to have complete discretion, in, not complete discretion, but discretion in this particular area uh, to, to, to go things our way. As Florida up until this point, they've been saying we're not necessarily providing counsel for indigent defendants as a matter of course. Other states have been saying, well, we will do that. That had been the state of affairs, a state of diversity, a state of some states would experiment one way, some states would experiment another way. What's 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 at, at the heart of a number of these cases that come before the Supreme Court in the 1960s, Map, Gideon, Miranda, is the question of to what extent should uniformity be in order? To what extent should we take away some of the discretion that states been, have been having about how to run things? And to what extent should be this a minimum threshold understandings imposed by the U.S. Supreme Court based on understandings of the U.S. Constitution? That was really a central uh, issue in these cases, the question of federalism. Hmm. Uh, and I see another question here from uh, from Julie. Um, she asked this, and I, I don't know, maybe Eric, you can, uh, you can help us out on this question. Um, in the segregated South, Julie asks, was this, uh, this applied, that is this ruling in, in the Gideon case, uh, with some semblance of equality to both blacks and whites? As a result, did blacks receive trials that treated them more fairly? Um, was this, 
Uh, was was this the uh, the result that you saw uh, in the segregated South post uh, Gideon? Um, a greater likelihood of African Americans receiving fair and impartial trials in the South? Well, uh, you know, one of the things I'd say about that is there's a lot of different elements that go into a fair and impartial trial um, that are independent of having the right to counsel. <laughs> um, and you know, I. I you know, to to my knowledge, at least, you know, what I've what I've looked into, um, uh, you know, uh, black defendants that were, of course, being tried for felonies um, were were granted right to counsel. But that doesn't mean they were in front of impartial juries. That doesn't mean that right. they were in front of impartial judges. Um, so even with counsel, that did not necessarily mean that they were getting the full benefits of a fair and impartial courtroom. Um, and, uh, you know, in front of an all white jury, uh, the, 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 there were getting a fair trial was still a difficult undertaking for a lot of black defendants, um, in, in the segregated South. Um, but, you know, this was a, a certainly a step in the direction of getting a, a perhaps more, um, you know, fair system, uh, in place, but, uh, there was obviously still a very, very long way to go. Uh, before the South was was reformed in its criminal justice system. Yeah, I think you're exactly right about that, Eric. I think you're exactly right about that. So um, besides uh, legal counsel, there are a whole other host of factors uh, that go into uh, that go into a fair trial. Um, and many of those, as you remark, right, were, were lacking uh, in in certain parts of the segregated South. Yeah. Um, so, so Gideon doesn't end up doing much that in order to uh, to advance justice for uh, African Americans in the South. Well, I mean, you know, it did more than what's being done before, um, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, certainly doesn't go near as far as as needed to uh, to to achieve the the goal of a fully fair trial um, mm -hmm. in 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 a lot of those places. Mm. Were there were there any points brought up in the in the various concurring opinions? I believe, correct me, guys, if I'm wrong about this, but I think there were three concurring opinions filed. Um, were were any of those um, of particular interest to you? Uh, that right, maybe they they decided on the case in a different way than the uh, than Black uh, had articulated in uh, in his opinion. Um, we know there were no dissenting opinions, but is there anything that uh, is worth taking away? Uh, from those those separate concurring opinions that are that are filed. Well, some of the some of these of the three concurrences, as, as you rightly note, uh, were, were were more discussing. But by my reading, they were engaging with this question about what are we doing when we apply certain provisions of the Bill of Rights against states and against state courts. Mm -hmm. And this was. In this sense, this came in the midst of a long-running discussion where Justice Black and the recently stepped off the bench Justice Frankfurter had been going back and forth on under what circumstances should we apply Bill of Rights to the states and state courts, and there have been different theories proposed. And so I took some uh, several of the concurring opinions be, to be interjections in this, in this debate. That is, they recognize mm -hmm. we have just applied, rightfully so, all the ju justices agree, we have just applied the right to counsel 
in felony cases uh, to uh, to the states. But what does that say about going forward? In other words, that is, are we are we going to apply uh, uh, all of the Bill of Rights to the states, or what they were kind of teasing out here? What 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 goes forward? What are the implications from this? Mm -hmm. And the one other thing I would say, so that's part of the interjection is, what have we just done, and what does this mean for going forward in other cases in regard to other provisions of the Bill of Rights? But Justice Harlan is probably the one who had the most extensive concurrence. Is, is, is the final mm -hmm. concurrence. And he takes issue with Justice Black and his majority opinion and said, well, we, we, we needed to overturn Fetz v. Brady. That was really a break from the past. And he had said that in his in his opinion, as, in his majority opinion in Gideon. He said, well, that was, you know, somehow we, we went wrong in issuing Fetz v. Brady, and now we're kind of going back on course. And Justice Harlan took a number of paragraphs to take issue with this. He said, he said in some ways that uh, he, he says, I, he starts off as a concurring, he says, I agree that Betts v. Brady should be overruled, but considered entitled to more respectful burial that has been accorded, at least on the part of those who were not on the court when the case was decided. And so he goes on to say, look, here's what the court probably thought it was doing in Betts v. Brady. It was not so much a break from the past, but that was just the general understanding at that point that state courts and state officials still had determinations to make in this area. And so he was essentially kind of going back over past history. I might just take that that opportunity without going too much long longer with this answer to say one of the things that I do for teaching purposes or one of the opportunities to engage with Gideon v. Wainwright as so, so rich of a case. You can engage with it on the way how the case came before the court, the Informa Pauperis petition, which we could talk more about here in, in a few more minutes if, if there was interest. That's one a way angle into it here. We had this handwritten petition that comes before the U.S. Mm -hmm. Supreme Court. That's that's a fascinating its own right for teaching purposes and just for scholarly purposes. Then there's second there is the, uh, the, the, the the circumstances of how the case was argued, as Eric has already mentioned, Abe Fortas, who several years later would get on the U.S. Supreme Court, and here he's picked to kind of argue this case, and in a case that's certain to be overruled. But one other area, and this is good, is a how the idea of how the U.S. Supreme Court changes its mind over time. And this is, a, this is, a, is very rich in that. That is, just 21 years earlier, the U.S. Supreme Court had issued a different interpretation of the Sixth Amendment. And here we are 21 years later, and the U.S. Supreme Court is overturning a case. Mm -hmm. It's overturning its opinion. This has all kinds of implications. We could talk about it, why it happened in this case, but also has implications of uh, what other cases did the U.S. Supreme Court change its mind? And when does the U.S. Supreme Court change its mind? Clearly, as Eric has already noted, that part of it is a change in the membership of the court. That is, only Justice Black and Douglas had, were on the court in Betts in 1942 and were still on the court in Gideon in 1963. So we had a whole new group of judges coming on and a whole set of justices that were leaving. And so that's part of how the U.S. Supreme Court changes its mind. But part of it's just societal evolution. That is of a, a generally evolving understanding of what it means to have a fundamental, uh, uh, fundamentally fair trial. That probably accounts for some of how the court changes its mind. Um, so that's 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 interesting as well. And so I take to go back to your question: What are the concurring justices doing? They're in part going back over and saying, "We've just changed our mind as a court. Well, why did we do that? And and what are we mm -hmm. saying by changing our mind?" Hmm. Yeah, 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 please, Eric. Go I ahead. was going to say just, uh, you know, in terms of the concurrences, I, I also thought Justice Douglas stood out for me um, as, you know, he's as, one of the guys who was also there for Betsy Brady, right? Yeah. Um, okay. uh, and so, you know, he's he's sitting here, you know, making the case, OK, this this was a great baby step forward. 
<laughs> but oh, I'd like to see us go so much further. <laughs> you know, he's he's the one embracing the full incorporation doctrine. Um, and you know, he, he says, you know, what he hates to see the occasion sort of pass without re-arguing the proposition that the 14th Amendment incorporates the full Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. You know, he says, this is a ripe opportunity to be doing this, and, and we're, we're letting it go <laughs> by, by focusing narrowly just on, on the Sixth Amendment. And so, you know, he actually says in, in the concurrence, you know, unfortunately, he says, you know, this, this, this approach or this, this way of looking at things has never commanded a court, yet happily all constitutional questions are always open. And what we do today does not foreclose the matter. <laughs> so, you know, look, looking forward um, for him uh, to the idea that, um, you know, perhaps perhaps this is a harbinger of things to come. And, you know, maybe one of these cases, the court can just go ahead and embrace the idea that the full totality of the Bill of Rights, Bill of Rights should be incorporated into the 14th mm-hmm. Amendment. Um, and, you know, we can just roll forward there. Um, you know, he, he obviously doesn't, doesn't get his wish. Um, but, uh, it's, it's interesting that, that, that perspective is on the court. Um, and, and, you know, we, we wonder how many other justices might be sympathetic, um, in, in some respect to, to that viewpoint. Yeah. Fascinating conversation here. I want to, I want to jump in here with a question from Stacy Moses along these same lines about the incorporation of the 14th amendment. Uh, Stacy asks, uh, let me, uh, scroll up here to make sure I get it right. Uh, so when was the 14th amendment first regularly included in appeals to the Supreme court? It seems that almost every appeal includes a reference to the 14th amendment and were map and Miranda filed as a violation of the 14th amendment. Yeah, I mean, the, this is part of a broader discussion that basically took place throughout the course of the 1900s and still continues in the 2000s. And that is essentially when the 14th Amendment was ratified, was it intended to apply all of the provisions of the Bill of Rights to the states? Was it meant to apply just some of them? And you, st- you start to see in 1925 in the Gitlow case and the U.S. Supreme Court says, well, the free speech clause that 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 is applied to the 14th Amendment to the states. And then you start getting other cases come up. And then, then and of course, the um, and 1960s, the cases that we've been just talking about, the map case in 1961, the Gideon case in 63, Miranda later on in the decade. Each of those, uh, by this point in time, and as we get to the question here, yes, the litigants in the cases, the 14th Amendment and the idea of incorporating the, the various provisions of the Bill of Rights against the states through the 14th Amendment, that is raised repeatedly. And so they keep saying, look, mm. you've incorporated and therefore applied these other provisions of the Bill of Rights to the states. This is the next one that you should do. And now how about double jeopardy? Now, how about this? And eventually we would get to 2010. And how about the Second Amendment guarantee of the right to keep and bear arms? Shouldn't that also be applied to the states? So by the mid 1900s, I guess if I could put it this way, this becomes to be a frequent argument being brought up by litigants saying this is a provision in our U.S. Bill of Rights. And you you, shouldn't that apply to state courts and state officials as well? In a number of cases, U.S. Supreme Court justices are agreeing with that argument and saying yes. So it sounds like the 14th Amendment wasn't applied 
um, right away. That is right right after the Civil War. It, it takes another generation, really, for these arguments to, to come forward to the court where um, aspects of the Bill of Rights are now being applied to the states by virtue of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause and Due Process of Law Clause. But that is that is something that the, the nation waits for. Or at least was brought up in some early cases in the 1870s in various cases, whether it be the slaughterhouse cases or other cases in which the question was raised is, what did we just do here with this 14th <laughs> Amendment? What exactly? We understand that we did certain things with with, with this. Um, we understand, that, but 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 how, how far did we go? And essentially the U.S. Supreme Court in various cases, and there are several cases in the early 1870s, essentially says we did not, though, do much more than hold that the equal protection clause now prevents uh, certain unequal treatment of African-Americans and on the basis of race. But we are not, the Supreme Court says in those early cases, applying, saying the Bill of Rights and, uh, and various other provisions of the Bill of Rights now apply to the states. As you say, it would be several generations afterwards, it'd really be the early 1900s before those cases, those arguments start coming up again, and more important, start being accepted by the U.S. Supreme Court. Is it too difficult to ask um, to ask this question? Uh, the way that the 14th Amendment has been applied up to the, the present day, is this something that the framers of the 14th Amendment could have envisioned? Is this something that they may or may not have intended? Uh, can we speak on, on that at all? Or is that too difficult? Well, I, I can jump in there and say no. Um, no. We, <laughs> <laughs> so not I, difficult I, at all, no. I, I, actually, I actually have a book somewhere here in the office that I usually keep on hand, and, and for some reason I don't have it right now, but it's, it's, the, uh, it's the history of the debates over the 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's got all of the House and the Senate debates. Um, and the book is about 2,800 pages long. Um, and it's in about four, it's in about four point font um, as it's, you know, copied out of the congressional record and stuff. Um, I, there were no two people that knew what they were doing with the 14th Amendment. <laughs> um, I, I think it's, it, I, you know, I actually have a lot of sympathy uh, for Justice Warren in Brown v. Board of Education when he says, you know, when, when you go back to the history of the 14th Amendment, you just find a mess. <laughs> and it's. We, we, we can't really try to ascertain what the meaning of the 14th Amendment was when it was originally passed. We can only kind of decide what the 14th Amendment means for us today um, in light of, of the full flourishing of education um, in, in America. Um, st studying the history of the 14th Amendment is a nightmare. Um, and and you, you literally can't find uh, you know, more than three people. Uh, at any given time who seem to be on the same page about what it applies to, what it's attempting to accomplish, um, how broad its scope is, uh, whether it you know applies to the states, uh, whether it just applies. I, it's, it's just it's an absolute uh, uh, you know, quagmire. Um, so it's to me not a real big surprise that the court initially interprets it very narrowly. You know, and sort of says, okay, you know, we're, we're going to apply this in a very limited context because we're not really even sure what the 14th Amendment was attempting to do. Um, and then later on kind of grows more comfortable, you know, with, with the language of it and says, well, you know, there might be some things that we feel like we can do that's good on behalf of, of society. Um, but I've, I have always had a hard time, uh, uh, you know, from a teaching perspective, 
talking to students about what the intentions of the framers of the 14th Amendment were, uh, because they they I, I don't think they shared a lot of common ground when it came to what they were trying to accomplish in the end. Very interesting. John, did you want to add anything to that? No, I, I, that, that, that sums things up for, for me as well. That is, a lot of effort has been spent, a lot of scholarly effort has naturally been spent looking at every single one of those pages of the debates that Eric just mentioned. And it is possible, and some scholars and some justices have gleaned from particular comments in those debates where a senator or a House of Representatives member would say, well, here's what I intend to do by proposing this, or here's what I think is going to be done by, by if we pass the 14th Amendment as it is. Well, I think this will make all the, you know, the first state amendments, this will apply, this will make the states uh, be obligated to abide by them. But so, so if one looks hard enough, one can certainly find some intent of some of the drafters to have done that. The challenge is we, we don't see that stay those type of statements by a number of other people in the debates. And we certainly don't see a broad consensus that that's what they intended to do. And so it becomes very challenging. I see that we're uh, we're quickly approaching the uh, the end of our or, or the conclusion of our our session. Um, I want to uh, give both of you an opportunity um, here as we we begin to to draw things to to a close uh, to speak about the the historical significance of the uh, of the Gideon case uh, or uh, or any of those cases that we have uh, that we have referenced today. Um, and also, uh, if you could maybe point us in the direction of some additional resources, some additional material uh, that might be that might be helpful for us to to understand some of the key concepts and arguments that we've been discussing here this morning. Um, Eric, I'm especially interested to hear maybe a little bit more information about this uh, this book that you referenced on the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. But what other resources might uh, might the two of you recommend to us for for further reading on these these subjects? Well, let me start by just the canonical text of, 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 for any discussion of Gideon v. Wainwright begins with Anthony Lewis's book of Gideon's Trumpet, which which tells this this the the story in very rich fashion from the beginning of how the case came before the U.S. Supreme Court, how the U.S. Supreme Court came to ask for a, a direct and oral arguments to be held on this how the litigants and, and the lawyers approach this, both Abe Fortas from the one side and Bruce Jacob from the other side. The aftermath of the case tells exactly how the case was come before against in, in Florida State Supreme Florida Court afterwards and how uh, Gideon was eventually freed. So Gideon's trumpet is, is just a leading source for to, to companion for, for, for understanding this. Um, that, uh, they're certainly going to the, 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 the cases themselves of Gideon and Betts. Two other things I would mention, though. One is it's possible, and this is available on various sites. One is the OYE site, O-Y-Y-E-Z, where you can actually get the oral arguments from this case. And sometimes that's fascinating for teaching purposes to be able to play snippets of the actual oral arguments as they were came before the U.S. Supreme Court, um, or actually that in some cases, if you just want to have the, the, the written arguments of, 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 of these cases, that's, that's fascinating to bring them alive. And then the final thing, and this was, I know, available for the materials here in preparation for this webinar is the actual petition that uh, that Gideon actually wrote up this informal
form a pauper's petition on this this lined notepad from from the Florida uh, prison in which he was serving, in which he sets out he, he's writing to the U.S. Supreme Court that uh, say, here's why you should actually grant my case. And you you see this, uh, you know, uh, the very clear handwriting. There's some sense of, of some uh, engagement and grasping of legal terminology in this has to be signed off by someone from the prison to kind of sign off and that, that he does qualify to be submitting this petition. So those would be some of the, the teaching materials or the scholarly materials I would most highlight in terms of uh, uh, learning more about this case. Yeah, um, I did manage to find the uh, <laughs> the book I was looking for. Um, it's called the uh, the Reconstruction Amendment Debates, um, and uh, it's a very thick volume. Uh, Legislative History and Contemporary Debates in Congress on the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, uh, published by the Virginia Commission on Constitutional Government. Uh, editors Alfred Evans, um, and uh, they have the the compilation of all the uh, the debates in Congress uh, over the the Reconstruction d debates, and that includes, of course, the 14th Amendment. Um, and uh, an invaluable resource that I've come back to a number of times uh, in doing research on. Uh, uh, various projects uh, over the years. Um, you know, in terms of uh, historical significance, you know, I, I guess the one thing that I'd, I'd, I'd point out or, or just, just illustrate, and it's, it's one of the things that I, I talk about a lot with my students when we, we discuss Gideon, it's the idea of the individual against the government. Um, this this notion that individuals are powerless against the power of the government um, and that there's nothing that can be done um, when, you know, injustice has occurred or, you know, you've been wrongly convicted or, or accused. And, you know, one of the things that's so neat about the story of Gideon is, you know, the guy is kind of crazy um, and uh, he's he's not a he's not a real nice guy. He's got a long felony record. Um, you know, you, you could find a sexier defendant um, if, if you wanted to look for it and stuff. But um, but the fact is, I mean, this guy from his jail cell, you know, writes this petition to the Supreme Court and, you know, it, it ends up getting selected and, you know, goes on appeal and, you know, ends up, you know, uh, 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 participating in a case that has profound impacts and changes in U.S. law, and you know, all of that started with him sitting down and you know, writing on a piece of paper. Um, and th there's there's something there's something about that that's that's kind of awe-inspiring. Um, that that uh, you know, an individual can have that kind of influence, um, including one that had no real education, was you know, functionally you know, uh, uh, indigent, but you know, not not certainly highly educated. Um, that, that he was able to, to do what he did um, and that the system essentially allowed him to do what he did, uh, I think is, is a testament to a lot of things that we sometimes grow kind of cynical about um, in American government. Uh, and uh, there's, there's something I've, I've always found uh, very hopeful uh, about the, the story of Gideon and, and what he accomplished. Um, even though, as I said, I, I could probably pick, pick a better defendant um, to, to get behind. <laughs> And uh, John, do you agree with that as sort of a, that's the, the thought maybe we should um, take away from the uh, from the Gideon case uh, as Eric has, has summarized it there? Or did you want to add anything to that? 
No, I think I think that's 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 certainly one of the leading ways to place the focus on. I'll just come back as I've come back several times in the in the in the discussion to the way that this could be pitched as a as a focus on federalism as well, mm. and that is a relationship between the federal government and the state governments. And just to sum up, I guess a point I've made. One of the challenges that we always face, and we face this now in various in, in the 2016 and other fashions, is in what areas should state governments be free to make their own decisions about how they try cases, and in what areas should the federal government be responsible for, uh, should ensure uniformity. Now, we face this in a lot of different ways. We face this today, to take away from the criminal, uh, uh, the capus here, is should marijuana be, should states be allowed to go their own way in regard to whether or not they legalize medical marijuana, recreational marijuana, or is uniformity required on this? How about in regard to voting? A number of states allow for people to register to vote and vote on the same day. The vast majority of states say, no, if you're not registered to vote before you actually show up to the, the polls, you, 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 you don't vote that day and, and you register. There's all kinds of different ways just in the, in the months since the 2016 elections, we've been struck by the degree to which states retain a significant degree of control, even over how they go about recounting votes cast in a, in a, in a federal election. And so one way that I, I pitch this case is, is it goes back to just a central question in American politics is in what areas should state governments be free to make decisions their own way? In this case, when and in what circumstances to provide counsel for defendants? And in what areas should we expect certain uniformity and certain minimal standards so that if one thing happens in one state, the same thing could be expected in the other state? That can also be brought out of the Gideon case. Very good points from both of you. I think that uh, is a nice way to, to sort of wrap up uh, such an interesting and fascinating conversation this morning uh, on the not just the circumstances um, and the judicial proceedings of the, the Gideon case, but also its uh, its historical impact, its historical significance um, for today, uh, which right, we, we continue to see up to the present moment. I know we're quickly running out of time, but I just uh, noticed one last question popped up here. We, I'm not, you know, we don't need to, I think, answer this, but I think it speaks its own importance. Um, someone in the uh, in the chat uh, just referenced um, the, uh, the North Carolina uh, church shooting case from 2015 and uh, the accused Dylan Roof. Um, he is maintaining his right not to have legal counsel. Um, to refuse legal counsel and, and represent himself. Um, so sort of refusing to, to take the, the, the benefits uh, that, the, uh, that the Gideon case, uh, in part at least, uh, had provided into the modern day. So this is a case in, in more than one way, I think that is, uh, that is still with us. We still see sort of the reverberations of, um, of this 1963 case throughout history. Um, Let's see, I, I see we are uh, only have a few minutes left. So um, before uh, before bringing the matter uh, to a close, uh, I want to, oh, it's uh, Dylan's case is in South Carolina. Uh, sorry. Um, I wanted to uh, to thank both of our uh, both of our panelists uh, here this morning, John Deenan uh, and Eric Sands. And in addition uh, to that, I also want to th uh, thank, uh, thank our participants for some really uh, great questions uh, this morning uh, on um, not just uh, the Gideon case at hand, but the, the role of the Supreme Court in a uh, constitutional 
Republic. So thanks to, uh, to everyone who uh, participated. But again, uh, our panelists especially, thank you for joining us. Uh, I do want to just say as a quick reminder here at the, at the end of things that uh, about the email that all of you will receive with a link for a, uh, a certificate of participation in this morning's uh, web seminar on historic Supreme Court cases. Uh, if you have enjoyed today's webinar, please consider uh, taking an online graduate course through the Ashbrook Center, which are also offered as part of our MAG program. You can find more information about Ashbrook's online course offerings at teachingamericanhistory.org or tah.org. You can help us spread the word about these programs by sharing the archive link, which you'll receive by email next week to your colleagues and on social media. Uh, and I believe that uh, that we'll also have up the uh, the recommended readings that uh, that our panelists had had uh, put forward for further uh, review for further study. Uh, if you're interested in pursuing some of these questions further and and helping uh, in making your uh, your classes uh, your classes better, our uh, our next Saturday webinar our next Saturday webinar will be in early 2017. So it looks like this is our last one for 2016. But our next Saturday webinar will be January 7th on a case that we mentioned uh, here today, uh, Miranda v. Arizona. So on January 7th, we'll be discussing Miranda v. Arizona. And at that time, uh, Jeff Sikinga of Ashland University and Stephen Tootle of the College of the Sequoias will be uh, joining us to share uh, their expertise on the matter. Uh, once again, I want to uh, offer a special thank you to John Deenan of Wake Forest University and Eric Sands of Barry College uh, and the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. Uh, at this time, I think since uh, I see we're, uh, we're, uh, we're, we've reached our time limit, I will say uh, thanks to everyone for joining us uh, today. I hope you learned a lot. I know I did. Uh, this has been absolutely wonderful, a, a very enlightening experience. Uh, and I hope that we'll uh, we'll see many of you uh, around uh, with future Ashbrook events down the line. So thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at TAH.org slash webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.